You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This week is the second of a two-parter looking at the life and times of Mike Susong. In the first part, we looked at Mike's time working for Uncle Sam, specifically his time with the Central Intelligence Agency. This week, we look at Mike's time working intelligence, but in the private sphere. Among other things we discuss, Mike setting up competitive intelligence programs for Fujitsu and Ernst & Young, his co-founding of a cyber threat intelligence company, iSight, and its role as a pioneer in that field, using intelligence to support business decision-making as opposed to national security decision-making, and last but not least, what drew Mike to that annual gathering of avant-garde free spirits in the Nevada desert called Burning Man. And as Mike says, don't Google it from your work computer. After, after the government service, I went into, a, still is, but at that time, kind of an emerging field of intelligence in the private sector, competitive intelligence. And I worked with, with two corporations to build competitive intelligence programs for them. And again, as I said earlier, I want to emphasize that's the ethical application of certain aspects of the intelligence cycle to support a business decision. So this was more on the analysis piece, some on collection. And certainly when you start to speak of collection within a private sector environment, you have to have clear, bright lines about what is and is not you know, acceptable. The dilemma is, if I can get on the soapbox just for a moment, is 
the rules and the latitude you're given in, in support in pursuit of national security policy, cover, deception, international laws that are, are not observed, obviously are completely off the table when you work for, for a corporation. And so you're applying really the analytical process, red teaming, uh, mirroring, looking at a problem from your business competitor's point of view and applying that to, to your client. So that was the transition, competitive intelligence, which was arguably the first step of intelligence into the private sector community. That was what was first really accepted. You, you looked at corporations that had long R&D cycles, are high-value intellectual property, and they were the first ones to really appreciate intelligence as a function within a corporation. So you think of pharmaceutical companies or high-tech companies uh, were, were one of the early adopters. And do you set up your own business or you go to work for a corporation or... Well, initially, I uh, went to work for two corporations and, and work, set up their competitive intelligence programs. And then, to your point, I uh, had the opportunity in the mid-2000s, 2007, with a colleague to start a, to start a private company. The, the two companies that you were involved in developing their threat intelligence, uh, what were they again? Oh, it was uh, Fujitsu Limited, Tokyo, and then Ernst & Young. Ernst and Young. So, so a consultancy and then a high-tech wow. corporation. And tell us a bit more about the company that you were involved in setting up. Uh, certainly, uh, quite proud of that. Eyesight? Uh, Eyesight Partners, that's, that's correct. Uh, started in 07. We were clever enough to target the financial market as our as our clients, right when there was the financial crash, <laughs> mm-hmm. so so we had the opportunity to uh, to adjust and and, and learn uh, the broader market more quickly. But we formed Eyesight Partners, which is a cyber threat intelligence company, and I would suggest it was that evolution of intelligence within the corporate world when we when we formed Eyesight. So you, you hear the expression now quite commonly within cyber, CTI, cyber threat intelligence. But I would argue that eyesight was the first one. We applied intelligence principles wow. to the, the problems, uh, whether it was malware, reverse engineering, whether it was the, the underground, the deep and dark web, and operating in, in forums with cyber criminals to, to, to identify either tools, techniques, and procedures that they were using against organizations. Wow. The SpyCast episode was on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center. They were really interesting. I spent about talking about recruiting (laughs) assets. It was a year to get them to commit to it, but it's certainly much less significant than founding eyesight, but I'm proud of getting Microsoft to commit to doing the podcast. But I think that the, the threat, cyber threat intelligence and threat intelligence are really, really fascinating. To your credit, uh, the Microsoft program is a very good program. And so that, that was a good podcast. I'll, I'll encourage the listeners to listen to it. <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course I do. And, and tell us a bit more about that. Was that one of those things where afterwards you look back and, and you think to yourself, wow, I guess I was involved in the development of this whole new thing, threat intelligence, or was it more at the beginning, 
here's threat intelligence, we need to apply this to corporations. Was it something that you started with or was it something that you ended up with? I guess one of the points of, of, of being an entrepreneur is you kind of have to have an unwavering belief in, in your idea that's both a detriment and a benefit. Because in the back of your mind, you keep wanting to say, especially with my background, is I don't want to be applying something that I truly believe in my heart, the intelligence process, either to a market or to a time that is just not ready for. So uh, in, in the end, you know, it all worked out well. And the marketplace, certainly cyber threat intelligence, as, as the Microsoft Center demonstrates, it is certainly the time has come. I'll take, if it'll give me just a moment to, to digress, is when I mentioned about the competitive intelligence being formed, then really the next step was geopolitical risk. So you had companies that formed right after 9-11. The world transformed itself and corporations suddenly who had not really concerned themselves with all those variables of protests, threat actors, typhoons affecting supply chain. Because again, at this time, the world was flattening, you know, supply chains were being distributed globally. So then there was that second phase of private sector intelligence, and that was the geopolitical piece. And then as we're talking now, the cyber threat intelligence piece is cyber became more prominent within the way corporations wanted and had to do business. So also it opened up the attack vector, to use the, use the phrase, of companies into the cyberspace. So it, it, it was inevitable when, to your question, when you're founding a company, you don't know if you're early or late. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that's quite interesting. So you're saying that when the Cold War ends and with processes of globalization and supply chains and and markets expanding, then all of a sudden, maybe, for example, in the 50s and 60s, you don't have to worry about geopolitical risk as much. But if you have a factory in country X or you're sourcing material from country Y, then all of a sudden geopolitical risk has more implications for the company and for the bottom line. So therefore it becomes more important. Is that right? It's absolutely uh, critical. And I think we're living through the you know, supply chain disruptions of COVID, which is a uh, testament to the fact that almost every supply chain is, is global, whether it's uh, arbitrage on currency or the availability of a workforce in another country. You may be making uh, farm equipment in the Midwest, or that may be where your headquarter is, but your supply chain, your biggest customers, your workforce is, is global. And so those companies then and today begin to realize, oh, well, I need to know what's going on. Is country X about to be you know, nationalized? Or is there a workforce that we use in a country that's maybe an ethnic minority and the country is has had a change in government and they're turning their attention against that ethnic group and suddenly I, I lose a workforce. And I don't want to sound as cavalier that the company only cares that they lose a workforce, but it would have a, you know, a direct impact on them in a country where maybe somebody in the back office in the Midwest wouldn't even know where it was on the map. Wow, that's fascinating. So we've got geopolitical risk, but at the same time, cyber and the internet, this is all developing at the same time. So not only are 
is your factory or your or the place where you get raw products from that's not just a factor but now the battle lines are redrawn because rather than someone having to cross the world break into a corporate headquarters of the midwest and steal information out of a safe now you can sit in the luxury of uh, a, a computer bank somewhere in another country and you can get access to the same information so the the battle lines have been redrawn really for you i just wondered if you had any thoughts on that because that is that what's happened them um, now it's not just about geopolitical risk but it's also about the battle lines have came to your front door they've came into your corporation because you're connected up to the internet it, it absolutely has you know i'll uh, hearken to to one of my favorite Bond films in Skyfall. That's what made that villain so believable is the, the tool was, was cyber and the manipulation of the, of the network to, to nefarious means. But nonetheless, any corporation has, has that exposure now. You know, whether we have a discussion about ransomware or just securing data within one country that may have privacy concerns about that information flowing to another country. It's completely fundamental the way businesses operate now. And so cyber is, is front and center. And to your point, how that information is secured or how it's stolen is, is virtual. And, you know, we could, we could have a whole conversation about then extra jurisdictional pursuit of someone. In some places, it's not a crime. Or in some places where it may be a crime, and that country is actually supportive of the U.S., or another country pursuing it. And there's been occasion I've bought gasoline for police cars <laughs> to drive <laughs> to the town where we think the, the cyber actor <laughs> was operating. So it's not that they don't want to support it, but it's either they have bigger problems or it's just not within their capacity to have a, a robust counter cyber uh -huh. uh, force. Uh, wow. And can you give us an example of some of this that would maybe just make it more tangible for our listeners? One thing I would, I would, I would say about ransomware, since we, we touched on that just a moment ago, is, and a lot of the questions are, is why suddenly ransomware? Uh, and so I'll make two points on there. You could look at ransomware as really a kidnapping and ransom event, but it's just using cyber to, your, to the earlier point that you made. That's what it is. It's a ransom event, it just happens to be you either pay in cryptocurrency and they, instead of releasing the, the, the individual, they're releasing your data back, back to you. So that's, that's the way you should frame that problem. And that's why corporations should look at that problem. Just like you would have a armored vehicle and maybe a security driver for your principal if they're traveling in a high risk area, you should be doing the equivalent to secure your the critical nodes of your network. And if you're not, you've exposed yourself. The other piece of that is, I believe reason ransomware is so prevalent now, as I refer to the speed of monetization. The speed of monetization for a ransomware event is days, rarely more than weeks. Whereas previously, if you looked at e-criminals, they would breach a network if they were able to maybe still credit card numbers, then you start the whole process of it, whether if you do it old school, you clone the credit cards or you clone the ATM cards and then you 
$200 at a time, you withdraw money out of an ATM machine, and then that money gets passed off to the e-criminal and the mule who stands at the ATM machine gets a percentage, or even if it was still an intellectual property, maybe something that could be sold in a secondary market or worst case to a competitor. All those things still took time and there were various players and there were chances of being compromised or interdicted by law enforcement. Speed monetization with ransomware is, I lock down your network and encrypt access to it and you're dead in the water until you pay the ransom. And then when you pay the ransom and the, the cyber currency is transferred, I'm in the money. So I think that's one of the high motivations for the criminals to, to pursue this, this method. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Tell us a little bit more about eyesight. What would be an example of what it would do? So say I'm a company and I come along and I reach out to you. What, what services are you providing? How do you go about providing them? Good question. Um, we were able to work, kind of work across the spectrum of the cyber threat. If you look at, it was probably brought up during your Microsoft visit, if you look at vulnerabilities in the parlance, it's zero days. A zero day would be a, a software flaw that's not been reported across the network. So if I'm as the criminal know about that flaw, even though I'm a conscientious corporation, I don't know there's a hole in my network. So a zero day is very valuable. So we would, we would either pursue zero days by doing software analysis and finding that hole. Or we would be working in the electronic underground where obviously that's the coin of the realm for the criminal to find a zero day. So if we could find a zero day in the underground, do our own analysis to make sure that it was in fact functioned as, as advertised, and then make the IT security industry aware of that vulnerability, it could, it could be patched. So that would be one thing. So, uh, Second piece would be is attribution. Let's say uh, the network was in fact breached by e-criminals. We would work with either a breach responder, now Mandiant is our partner for iSight, who would actually go in and do a diagnostic of the network to see what had happened. When that happens, you can look at, it's like fingerprints, you know, or certain criminals use certain techniques. You then start to see those signatures and let's say, uh, I don't want to get too geeky here, but say uh, the, the e-criminals go into a network and they tend to always try to 
find a place in the HR server because nobody ever looks there. And then they use that as kind of their springboard within the, the rest of the network. If we see those early indicators, we can much more quickly help the enterprise find out what happened. Maybe that particular group always likes intellectual property, whereas another group likes to steal credit cards, whereas another group is actually just surveying the network for maybe an exploit later. Uh, it, it helps the, uh, the the corporation get back back on track much sooner. And how did you come up with this idea, you know, as an entrepreneur? Did you have the, the skill set to do this yourself or did you have the idea and think I need to get people that can rummage around on the dark web or look for zero days and so forth? Is that something that, that you had done or was it this is something that needs to happen and I've got the idea and, and now we need to get people that can apply this? But yeah, it was the latter. I certainly don't have any corner on wisdom. I consider myself s- smart enough and across the broad spectrum of the skills that we need. But no, it was in the day it was 380 people that all those skills, different skills were what what made the corporation successful. As, as I joke, you know, you you have the guys in the dark room who you feed them a Mountain Dew and bean bean dip, uh, and and they can reverse engineer anything and they can see exactly how something was coded or why it was built a certain way. And those skills are invaluable. At the same time, I would add is, and again, in respect to all my colleagues who have high technical skills, you then have to articulate that risk in business terms. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's where iSight Partners was successful and where any intelligence capability within the corporate world has to really make sure they can do that is, why does the business uh, leader need to know that? What can they do about it? I I joke that if you come from the government, you come from a moneyless society. <laughs> There's certainly money there, but you don't have to meet shareholder intent quarter to quarter. And so you have to make sure you phrase what you bring from intelligence to your business client in those terms. One of the, the things that you often hear about with ransomware and other cyber attacks you always hear of with links to government x or with links to government y or intelligence service z for our listeners help them understand the threat landscape out there is it like 95 percent of all of this stuff is basically just a once or twice removed arm of the chinese government or some other government or are there are there like big actors out there playing the game for themselves so is there uh, I don't know if anyone's thought of this before but I think it's quite a neat idea is there like a five families uh, you know mafia style network of cyber criminals are there help us understand that is it mainly nation states that are doing this or is it rogue companies or are there are there or organized criminal elements out there playing the game for themselves? It's all of the above, uh, but I'll go into detail. Um, If I categorize cyber threat actors in categories, I would say nation states, and we'll go into a bit more detail, e-criminals, and again, we'll characterize what those groups like, look like, a hacktivist, if you want to think of anonymous, and some other groups that are motivated by political activities. And then a category that's a, kind of neither fish nor fowl. It, it may be 
groups that are acting in support of a nation state, but they're also probably uh, fund themselves through e-criminal activity. So you kind of have this this landscape of those groups. Nation state actors, if you want to characterize their efforts, usually you would refer to it as low and slow. They're pursuing their national strategies, and so they don't need to go in and proverbially break the glass of the, the jewel case and steal the diamonds to monetize them. In one way, they're the most insidious threat because they'll be harder to detect. They're playing the long game, as I mentioned earlier. Maybe their objective is just to go in and surveil the network, know how it operates, and then know what vulnerabilities are, and then they they remove themselves, and there's there's little or no indication of that. So that's pervasive, whether it's infrastructure, dams, electric power grid, financial institution, or whether it's targeting a particular American or other company that has intellectual property that that nation state wants to maybe make a technological leap over. So that would be how it would be characterized those groups. Correction, uh, e-criminals we kind of spoke to. I, I would say that that early on, uh, a lot of the talent, and it's still arguable today, came out of the former Soviet Union system that had high value in STEM skills, hard science skills. Certainly when they went through the tumultuous time in the 90s and people, legitimate citizens with legitimate hard science skills weren't able to feed their families or buy a pair of shoes, and then they had the opportunity to apply their skills to write malware. You know, certainly not defending the actors, but when you think of the talent that now has evolved in that area, you can see why why it happened. And to your question, I think I would call it organizing crime. It's probably not owned by identifiable criminal groups per se, but they certainly use the tools. They certainly then will employ a hacktivist team or a group to to pursue uh, criminal activities on on their part. Wow, it's re- it's a really fascinating space. And do you think that for say corporations out there, or for Joe or Gen Q public, what what are the things that they need to worry about? Is it the nation state actors? Is it the e criminals? Is it the hacktivists or all of the above to some extent? It's the e-criminal from my point of view, and we used to call it cyber hygiene. It's just good awareness of what your password is, <laughs> where you keep it, who you give information to, whether it's through a text or a go old school over the phone, as, as well as just being aware of clicking on a link. It, it, you know, it, it, it's almost always... The simplest things that are the problems, but a link in a document or, a, or in a text that may be the malware or the pathway in for the, for the criminal. So again, it's, it's God and apple pie. It's just do, doing what you should do every single day. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's really, really interesting. And tell us a little bit more about some of the other things that you've been involved in. So iSight, and I believe that that company was sold on to FireEye, right? That, that's correct. Uh-huh. After afterwards, that's when I then shifted gears again. It hurts that I can't keep a job but the, to uh, to the geopolitical space, and that's where I joined what was then iJet is now part of Garda World, 
Crisis 24, and we do the geopolitical an analysis for about 1,200 clients around the world. And are those clients mainly corporations or governments or individuals or all of the above? All of the above, primarily corporations, although we have a significant number of uh, NGOs. As you can imagine, they're doing great work and they work in areas that more than likely are or more risky, you know, as, as we look on the news, unfortunately, with the with individuals who were kidnapped in, in Haiti yesterday. So we work with, with NGOs as well, and they have the same concerns. Is it safe for us to travel down this road? Should we be concerned about operating in this country? What's their attitude towards our, our mission? And the corporations obviously have bigger picture issues about if they're an extraction business, are we operating in the right part of this country? And as you can imagine, in some parts of the world where it's tumultuous, are we are we affiliated with the with the right uh, group that you know uh, warlord that has control over this area? You know, and 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 are we still operating within the good principles of of international corporate rules? Wow, and you know, you're probably better placed than anybody to answer this question. Does all of these do all of these technological changes not not mean the death of traditional espionage, but help us understand some of the ways that they may impact it? So human intelligence operations, I'm thinking of a back in some places, constant surveillance, facial recognition. There's all these really sophisticated ways that you can keep track on people or even the types of people that can maybe join the intelligence agencies because there's hardly anyone from Gen Z out there that doesn't have an image somewhere on the internet with their real name attached to it. So there's all of these, there's all of these technological changes, but as someone that used to be a spook yourself, but who's now heavily involved in tech, help us understand some of the, the things that you have maybe thought about over the years, like thinking back on being a case officer and some of the things that are happening now? It's a challenge that certainly the intelligence community of every service is, is, is dealing with today. And we alluded to it earlier before. It's, it's been a benefit and a curse. Certainly your digital profile it has to be far more carefully curated. And, and to your point, I don't want to sound about speaking of a younger generation, but but it is true that there is more of a, I would call it digital exhaust. I mean, every time you've, you've affiliated with, with a network as you walk down the street, that's a, a record of you having been there at that point in time and how long that is, that is kept. So to your point, it has enabled some technological advances so that the danger and the risk and the counter surveillance of meeting on that street corner has been removed. You can have the virtual meeting. I don't think we've resulted as having Zoom calls with our asset, assets. But at the same time, it, it, it is a challenge to how do you pass through across borders with facial recognition or, or imagery of your other activities uh, available. So it, it's a real challenge, but I will say that the, still the, the principles behind good tradecraft still allow us to operate globally. And it was, and with every operation, you have to adjust. It's changing tack a little bit. Tell us about Burning Man. Okay. <laughs> I find that quite interesting. <laughs> that, that, that's quite a shift. To those of you who are familiar with, with Burning Man, it's a, an annual 
art event in the desert in Nevada, 70,000 participants. I would caution our, our listeners not to Google Burning Man on the work computer because it's a very avant-garde, free-spirited event. (laughs) I had the opportunity to be what's referred to as a Black Rock Ranger. Black Rock is the portion of the Nevada desert where Burning Man is held. The Black Rock Rangers are not security personnel, but we're there to help the participants be safe, whether it's, uh, you know, barking your shins on... uh, on your tent stake as you're setting it up or something more serious. But I would, one thing that drew me to that, maybe Dr. Hammond, back to your earlier point about me looking for new opportunities is Burning Man's a a social experiment where 70,000 people show up in the desert. It's, you bring everything you must bring with you, water, food, everything. And when they leave, they leave without a trace to the credit of the event. The ground is swept clean. But the the opportunity to see some of the creative artistic talent that is it is there is really amazing. Uh, uh, so it, it was again it was another opportunity to to take part in a in a social experiment that's been going on for decades. But but to be as an observer, maybe that's my case officer uh, skills is, is to be be an observer. Our, the motto was safety third. <laughs> People were going to have a good time. They were all adults. They should take care of themselves. If it really got bad, then the block rock rangers would, <laughs> would, would try to help them out oh. of a bad spot. <laughs> I've often thought to myself that it would be I think it would be a good thing for the IC to have some kind of Burning Man event because it's like uh, you're shaking off the the mundanity and the conformity of everyday life. And like you say, people are thinking avant-garde or thinking outside the box. And sure, maybe for every success, there's nine dead ends, but at least they're, at least they're thinking and experimenting. You could... Do, do, do you think you can make an argument that that's where the IC needs to go? <laughs> needs to go a little bit more. I definitely think the IC needs to go to Burning Man. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's a great experience. And to your point, is there's a lot of talent, and you see a lot of creative things. And although some might think this is a bacchanal, it's actually very well organized, and and people are uh, people have a great time. I don't want to 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 argue otherwise. Fact is, there'll be twelve hundred aircraft land and depart Burning Man, and Millie. That's when the Glitterata uh, arrives for just a few days. But it's uh, it's quite an event, and I think it'll reoccur next year in in the deserts. So. How many times have you been a Black Rock Ranger? Well, it's you have to have attended Burning Man four times. So okay. More recently, uh, the last you know, we didn't have Burning Man last year because it was virtual. So, so you have attended as a participant. Yes. yes oh wow. A, okay. So, so that, they have a vetting. Actually, they have a, again a very organized training process. Again, this all seems counterintuitive to having a discussion about Burning Man, but it's enjoyable. <laughs> well, again, I think that I think that one of the things that's interesting about that to me is that to me that speaks to something about you. I know you're being humble and stuff, but yeah, not everybody that has had the experiences you have had would be willing to go to the desert and mix it up with a bunch of kind of avant-garde kind of free spirits. They certainly are, but, but without drawing too hard of a comparison, if you think of a case officer, he or she has to interact with whomever that other 
uh, asset is, regardless of their cultural background or their philosophies or their points of view. So maybe maybe the farm uh, trained me to be a, a good Black Rock Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> Does some of this you think go back to, you said that you're really interested in cultures and people and the way that people exchange meaning and so forth. Do you think that Burning Man's a, a good example of that as well as the world of espionage? I, I, th- I think it really it really is because as, as I said, you'll find a spectrum of of people from all over the world come to Burning Man and and, and participate, and uh, it's 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 a big community. So. I think I've covered most of the ground that I wanted to speak about today. I feel like we could come back and maybe explore some more stuff uh, in a future podcast. Um, but for this one, do you think that there's anything that are there any important ingredients that I should have been incorporating into the dish that I've left out? No, I think you, you thank you very much for the opportunity. I think you did a great job of, of covering my misspent youth uh, and, and the opportunity to speak with you today. I think the next phase, if you will, is is the role of open source intelligence and, and AI in, in that space. And that's where I probably spend my focus uh, today is how that's going to evolve once again both on the the government side, the IC side, as well as the private sector. Well, thanks. Thanks ever so much. It's been a pleasure to speak to you and to hear more about your story. Thanks so much for sharing it with me. Thank you for today. And I encourage everyone to both listen to SpyCast as well as come and visit the International Spy Museum. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.